Welcome to The Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And today, well, it's the 100th episode of The Greg Bennett Show. Uh, I set myself a goal, well, 100 weeks ago, and I said I am not stopping until I at least hit 100 episodes. Well, I'm not stopping. I'm continuing. I'm hitting 100, and I'm going to keep running with it. And I'm excited to say that this episode, I was joined by the remarkable, the delightful Lucy Charles Barclay. And we just have absolutely a beautiful conversation, um, a lot of laughs. I think you'll thoroughly enjoy this episode. I've decided to put it in two parts. It it was both long and there was just also a lot of great information in there. So it's a two-part series. In part one, we really dissect her incredible 2021 season where she took the 70.3 world title amongst other things and then we kind of look at her journey into the sport and the process in which she came to the sport which has been very rapid Uh, her rise to the top has been quite exceptional in part two we have some fun with the rapid fire questions and you, you really get an insight to lucy there and then we dive a little bit deeper into her team and relationships, her typical training days, training weeks, and, and all that kind of thing, and mental strategies, and uh, just a lot in this one. Uh, Lucy shares a lot of great advice, and uh, I think you'll you'll have a lot of fun. I know I did. A little bit of housekeeping before we go on. Again, I, I want to thank you so much for listening and sharing this show. It has grown, and, and I truly appreciate you all for doing that. If you do want to give me any feedback, if you do want to share it, I'd love any of that. It really does help the show. And finally, I know I can't ask every question that you might want to hear in these podcast interviews. I did want to let you know that Lucy is on a platform called Any Question. And if you go to anyquestion.com forward slash Lucy and sign up, I know you can have a free month. And there you can ask any follow-up questions to Lucy And it's all video-based, so rather than just listening to her, you actually get to see her answers. Go check that out. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. A short time ago, I had a good friend of mine, Ed Baker, on the show, and we discussed his new platform called Any Question. Now, Ed is the former head of international growth at Facebook, and then he moved across to a small little startup called Uber and became the head of growth and product at Uber. His reputation is quite remarkable, and his new product, his new platform that he's built called Any Question is something that you've got to go check it out. You can go ask experts across numerous categories questions. You can listen to their answers that they've already answered from other people's questions. It's all video-based, so you can see the experts answering them. And today's guest, Lucy Charles Barclay, is on the site. So you can listen to this podcast. If you have any follow-up questions, you can go ask her questions there, listen to her answers from other people as well, and go check it out. Right now, you can go use anyquestion.com forward slash Lucy. That's anyquestion.com forward slash Lucy. And you can use that link and then you'll have a free first month to go check it out. So you might as well go check it out. I think you'll be blown away by it. It is going to be the next big thing. Check it out. Mine's all round. She's asking. She's getting the cheers. It's 
It's a magnificent performance. She led out of the swim, but only just over Lauren Brandon under real pressure on the ride. But she uh, kept her powder dry, she kept her composure, and she put it all to bed with a remarkable run. And she's on the red carpet now. Lucy Charles Barkley, the defending champion, has come back in 2019. And for the second year in a row, will be crowned the Standard Bank Ironman African champion once again. Lucy Charles Barkley, congratulations on a fantastic performance. Champion once again, Lucy Charles Barkley. Well, I've got some great news for you, Lucy Charles Barkley. You have just broken three hours on the marathon, taking five and a half minutes off your PR today. That now sends a message to the world that she is now ready for the world crown. All right, for the 100th episode, I truly wanted it to be special. And my guest today is that special person. She's the current number one ranked triathlete in the world and the 2021 Ironman 70.3 world champion. She is consistently on the podium in any race, any distance and format, winning Ironmans and 70.3s all around the world and finishing second three times at the Ironman Kona World Championships. Her competitors know that when she's on the start line, it's going to be flat out from the gun. In pursuit of her greatness, she also remains completely down to earth and close to her family and friends and always has a smile for the cameras. It's an enormous honour and privilege to have someone I truly admire and respect tremendously join me for a chat. So welcome and thank you for joining me on The Greg Bennett Show, Lucy Charles Barclay. How are you? Hey, Greg. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that's quite an intro. I could uh, get used to listening to that for sure. So uh, <laughs> pretty nice. <laughs> Put it on repeat. <laughs> get, get the day going. I love it. Now, we had hoped to do this recording in person in Daytona, but it's been a long year, huh? Yeah, it's been it's been a great year. I think off the back of 2020, where I really didn't do anything, it was amazing to have such a great year this year, dip my toe into so many different things and just have fun but also get some really great results as well so it's been a busy year but it's been a a really good year yeah congrats on everything again I know you and I have spoken briefly a a month or so ago and I it's one of those years where you look at and go wow the performance just you went you're already one of the top two or three consistently for the last three to four years and it was almost like this this little elevation that happened this year, this 10% improvement, 1% improvement, whatever it was, and you just suddenly, boom, up into the number one. How does that make you feel when you hear, okay, I'm, I'm now number one on the world rankings with a world title? <laughs> I think definitely after last year where I just didn't race, I just wasn't sure where I was going to be, where the body was going to be. And I kind of remember back to my swimming days where my swimming coach said, no one who's a world-class athlete gets rubbish overnight. And I kind of, that just stuck with me where I was like, there's no way I'm going to have got rubbish with even a year without racing. It wasn't like I hadn't done anything all year. I'd still been training and doing stuff. So I was confident I would still be good, but I didn't know at what level I would be at. And I just actually feel like that year almost of rest, doing different things, just gave me a whole new lease of life, new energy. And it just, it, it showed this year how much that actually helped me rather than was a disadvantage it was actually an advantage for sure nobody gets rubbish overnight i think that's fantastic because i think as athletes we tend to be tough on ourselves mentally and you feel like ah oh, 
I've had two days off because I'm sick. Now my now I'm not going to be able to ever run again. Kind of thing. It's like whoa, 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 back yeah. up, back up. It's not that bad. <laughs> now, <laughs> now you're on break, and yet on your Instagram, I and your YouTube, I keep seeing you doing ten kilometer runs, fifteen kilometer cross country races. Is this what you just like to do on break? You like to just keep beating yourself up? <laughs> I'm not very good at doing nothing, which I think most athletes aren't very good at not doing anything. So I like to throw myself into fun events, which I actually feel like I've, I've done a bit of that this year anyway. But I always spend the winter doing a bit of cross-country running, going down to Cornwall, kind of going in the sea when it's freezing, just doing kind of fun, <laughs> mad stuff that I wouldn't normally do. <laughs> I love that you call that fun, mad stuff. I think most people think of a break, putting their feet up and watching Netflix in front of the fire. For you, it's it's doing some of these mad cross-country races and, and jumping in the freezing ocean. <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> I will, I will do the, uh, I will do the Netflix stuff, but I feel, I still feel like I have to evolve to it by doing something before, and then I can enjoy chilling out in front of the TV. That, that was like a, I saw you did that 10k at the, is it Alton Towers theme park? Yes. Yeah. yeah, and and it was all about almost deserved to go to the theme park, but you had to go belt yourself around a 10k that looked pretty tough and still ran 35 minutes in your break <laughs> to, to enjoy a theme park. <laughs> Yeah, you've got to earn it. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. Now, we're recording on a Tuesday, late afternoon UK time. A Tuesday for you, what does it typically look like? And, and now that you're on break, what, is, what were you up to today? So a Tuesday normally is uh, track Tuesday typically. So we would go to the track. We kind of normally do track around half nine, ten. Um, it's normally quite a hard session. We would come home normally have a bit of a catch up with uh holly the media my sister mm -hmm. uh, and paz who works for us we have a bit of a team meeting after the track just catch up on everything that we've got going on um have some lunch and then we would normally do an easier bike session in the middle of the day and then typically we swim on a tuesday evening which is a brutal time of seven till nine p.m which i'm still <laughs> considering doing tonight there must be something <laughs> wrong with me <laughs> Um, I got a butt in here real quick because when we were setting up this time to chat, you said, well, Greg, I can do 5 p.m. on Tuesday, but i got to be out of here because i got swimming at 7 p.m. I was like, I wrote you back and I said, are you nuts? <laughs> Firstly, even when I was in season, I wouldn't be swimming at 7 p.m. at night. And you're on break and you're still swimming at 7 p.m. And I'm like, you must really, I'm not sure if I said this to you, but I left going, she must really want to be amazing in this sport or something. I don't know. The, to <laughs> me, that just sounds absolutely awful. Is that every night of the week or just Tuesday nights? Uh, it is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Friday. Oh, God. But I don't do all of those. They're all the available options. I normally would do Tuesday and Friday. Is that only when the pool's are? Where are you? You're in Hatfield? Or? Uh, so we are based in London, but we're right on the Essex border. So um, we swim normally in a place called Loughton, which is Essex. Um, and our local swimming club is called Epping Forest Swimming Club. So... Yeah, they, they have some questionable times for their sessions. They they have the normal really early morning ones as well, which I actually prefer because mm. then you get the swim done for the day, but they also have the, the late evening swims as well, which yeah. always seems like a great idea in the morning. And then by the time it's getting dark now and it's you're like, oh, should I? Well, I probably should. But <laughs> And then on those nights, I, was, I, was, I mentioned it to Laura, my wife, and, and uh, 
I said, yeah, yeah, no, Lucy's, Lucy's going swimming after the podcast at 7 p.m. She's like, what? And, uh, and Laura's been a swimmer her whole life and, and she's like, can she go to sleep after that? So there's, there's a question for Laura. Can you go to sleep when you come home from such a late evening swim? I, I definitely do find it difficult. I think the hardest I've ever found trying to sleep was during um, lockdown last year when we did the, the Zwift race in it. It was like the Z Pro mm-hmm. series. And after that, I was just wired. I mean, I'd, I'd had all the caffeine in the world, all the sugar just to get you going. And then Reese and I would be like 2 a.m. still wide awake, like, oh, and that was a weekly thing for four weeks. So we just ruined our sleep cycle doing that. But swimming, swimming's not so bad. I actually, I find I can sleep pretty well after that. You guys really do take things. I think you're fairly competitive from what I've seen. So when it came to these Zwift <laughs> series races, it's you treat them like a world championship. It doesn't matter. And so you're going to load up on caffeine, even if it means you're going to be awake till two in the morning. It's brilliant. So anyway, I want to move on. The goal of today is to really just to get to know you a little more. And, and we'll start by sort of looking at your recent performances, you know, specifically 2021. And then we'll kind of wind the clock back and and look at your journey into the sport and that kind of thing. So let's start kind of towards the end because it really is the standout performance of the year and the win at the World Championships, Ironman 70.3 and St. George. um, Just firstly, huge congrats. I really do believe it's one of the all-time greatest performances we've seen in the sport of triathlon and I mean that I've been around for a long long time I've seen a lot and I think it was just one of those outstanding performances so huge congrats let's step through the race shall we yeah your expectations firstly before the run race everyone did you kind of go in with the mindset of I'm in a good place mentally physically emotionally I I, I can win this was it were you telling yourself that I definitely mentally felt in a really good place. I knew I'd done a really solid amount of work. Um, I'd been in Club La Santa for, I think, about four weeks. I'd done a, a really good block of work. And it's not actually until now, looking back on that work, I kind of realised just how good a shape I'd got in. Looking at some of the sessions I'd done, I was kind of just doing some of the best ever runs I'd done, the best ever bike sessions I'd done. And actually when I was in that moment, I hadn't really realized, but now when I look back, it's like, well, I should have known that I was in incredibly good (laughs) shape. And then we had at the end of that camp, I had the Collins cup where I got sick and I still actually had a pretty decent day, but it, it wasn't what I was fully capable of because I had been struggling with the stomach bug. And unfortunately that stomach bug carried over to the start of my, um, final camp for St. George. And the first week of that camp was really up and down and I, I didn't manage to do a lot of to, at all. I had about two days where I just sat on the sofa and I, I couldn't do anything. And I was getting a bit worried that there was some, I had some other niggles and things and I was like, Oh, is it all falling apart at the last moment? Um, and then at the end of that week, it kind of things turned around and I was doing some great sessions again and, and we were at altitude as well. So I was like, if I'm doing good sessions up here, then that, that's got to be pretty good. And we went down and swam actually in St. George, which was at a lower altitude. And I honestly just felt like superwoman in the water. And I was like, I think, I think this is going to be good. And kind of leading into race week when we went into St. George and we kind of did the pre-race press conference and even there, I kind of just, I felt this confidence that maybe I hadn't felt before where I was, I believed in the work that I'd done and we were seeing great things in that final build up. And I just had this feeling that it could be the day if everything went right. And obviously everyone who does triathlon knows so much can go wrong in a triathlon. (laughs) So 
I knew everything that I could control would be good, but you have this outside of other things that obviously you can't control that you try and just block out of your mind. So I did have a very good feeling. I knew I was in great shape and if it all unfolded in the right way, it was going to be a great day. Well, it certainly was a great day. Let me just quickly for listeners that may not have realized, you let out of the water um, with a 130, one minute 30 gap. You then had the fastest bike by almost three minutes. And then you had the fastest run um, by almost 30 seconds. And one with about an eight minute lead over eight minutes um, with the four hours and 19 seconds. I guess firstly on that, are you really bummed that you didn't break four hours? <laughs> I mean, there, there's definitely a part of me that thinks that, but there's there's also a part that if anyone saw the course in St. George, oh, no, those okay. 19 seconds could have been a, a face plant on the downhill at the end. So <laughs> I, I cautiously ran down that hill. So I'll take it. I didn't end up on my face. No. We, we can take the 19 seconds. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> I really do. And I just want to admit, you, you, I didn't actually realize I was calling the Collins car. I didn't know you had a stomach bug. Did we know that? Were we Did us announcers miss all that? Was that public? I didn't say anything about it before the race. I kept quite, I, I have a very good game face, which oh, I think yeah. even, even throughout the whole race, you probably wouldn't have known. And my friends who watched were like, we never would have known. So quite good at, at hiding it when it's going wrong. <laughs> Don't play poker with Lucy, anybody. She's got a good hand or a bad hand. She's still going to play the same. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> exactly. And, and then also on that, I guess, you know, with the stress building before 70.3 Worlds, you know, you said you had maybe a few little niggles, stomach bug. How's Reese? I mean, what do you like to live with when, when these kind of things happen? Both two professional triathletes under the same roof. Are you an easy person to live with? Do you manage that stress well or is it? I think most of the time I, I do handle it quite well, but I definitely wouldn't handle it as well without Reese there. He's just like my rock all the time, mm. telling me exactly what I need to hear. And he'll be completely upfront and honest with me. He will tell me if I need to do something. If I'm not doing something well, he'll be the first to tell me. So I trust everything that he says. So I think we was out on a run. It was supposed to be a long run off of the bike and I couldn't run. I had to keep stopping, going to the toilet and my stomach was cramping. It was just horrendous. We had my physio was there on a bike as well. And it all ended in tears. And I was really worried that it was all going to go horribly wrong. And he was like, look, I know it said on your training plan that's what you needed to do but you can't do it so because I was just beating myself up mm. about the fact that I couldn't do it and I felt like I'd failed and he was like look you've done so much work this one run is not going to defy what happens in that race so you're just you're going to take the rest of the day off you're going to take tomorrow off and then we're going to re- reassess where you're at and start again and it was all I needed to hear because my whole world had come crumbling down because everything was gearing towards the biggest race of the year And then in reality, I took those two days and then I felt pretty good again. That was all the body needed was just that little bit more time to recover. And actually, I think we said it in the beginning that some athletes, you you panic that you've had two days off. But realistically, the amount of fitness you're going to lose in two days is absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. So you can take those two days when your body really needs it um, just to get over things. I I, I want to talk about your team and your relationships a bit later in the show, but I was always fairly high strung going into races. You know, you've been pushing and pushing for weeks, months, years for, for a big performance. And and then, you know, little things are happening, whether it's sickness or little injuries or whatever. And, and it's so great to have somebody strong in your corner that you trust, that knows you very well. For me, that was Laura. For you, that's Reese. And, and I used to often hand over my, my taper because we were self-coached, but I'd hope, hand over my taper to 
Laura, for the last two weeks. And she would force rest me far more than I probably would have done myself. And it was a, it was a great gift to have somebody in my corner like you have, Reese. So I can totally appreciate that you, you having him there helped you mentally and emotionally prepare for, for this race. Now let's step back to the race. Was there a point that you kind of knew that you really had it won and it was just kind of like just maintain sort of this gap and don't do anything stupid? When did you sort of realize, wow, I've, I've got a reasonable lead here? I think in, in most races that I've done when it when it's going well and sort of towards the end of the bike, you're just praying that nothing's going to go wrong on the bike. And I got off the bike in St. George and I knew I had maybe five a five-minute lead over second place. And I had done some great running and training. So I knew as long as I didn't do anything silly, I didn't have a massive nutrition dilemma and my stomach didn't fall apart, I, I knew that I could do the run I, I know I love running hills I knew it was going to be hilly I just basically knew as long as I do what I'm capable of doing on this half marathon don't go out too hard then I'm just running a half marathon to claim that first world title and it was I really had to I didn't want to believe it I didn't want to tell myself that I was like don't even think about that just do the job you need to do go out there run how you know you can run doing the nutrition strategy that we've planned don't have more, don't have less, just try and do it right. <laughs> I, I really didn't think about getting that win until I basically got to the bottom of that hill because I still thought I could still fall down the hill and it all go wrong. So, so just <laughs> that would be that would be just disappointing, but also very embarrassing, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, if if it, if it took me eight minutes to pick myself up off the floor, we'd have a real issue. But yeah, <laughs> I just knew once I got on the flat, I would then start to celebrate, yeah. kind of really absorb that moment, and it was so nice that I could do that when obviously I've been second three times at world championships, it was nice to win it in a way where I could really enjoy it, really soak it up. And yeah, it was an epic day. And, and was it one of those wins? And this is kind of getting specific, but was it, you, you're kind of running down the finishing straight and you see the finishing tape and the crowd's yelling and, and you're happy. Was it a a little bit of a performance where you got to kind of, you know, do the, you think of the Jan Fadino grabbing the tape, yelling at the camera type thing, or was it a true emotional deep where you kind of don't even know what you're doing down the finishing straight. You just, the energy has just got you and you just feel light as a feather and you just, what was it like? Cause I know it's, it feels different sometimes. Yeah. It, it still almost feels like an out of body experience. Like mm. even when I, when I watch it back, it doesn't even feel like that was me doing it. I'm like, oh my God, that was actually me running and getting that tape. And I guess I'd I'd had so long on that run with it creeping in my mind, like, you're going to win this, you're going to do this, that I almost had time to think, oh, how how should I celebrate this? How, how do I want to take the tape? What do I want to do? And then I think I then got to that red carpet running down crowds going mad and all of that had got out of my head and it was just pure emotion just couldn't believe it like is this even happening it was just so amazing and then to have obviously Reese there at the finish line waiting and I I got more emotional than I probably normally would at a finish line just because it it meant so much to me but I knew how much it meant to the entire team and all, all the work that had gone into it to have everyone there at the end was just amazing the only people missing were, were my parents who obviously couldn't travel but 
um, that means they'll just have to do it again when, when they come. <laughs> You're so. just going to have to keep doing <laughs> yeah. it once a year. Everybody <laughs> can plan a nice vacation somewhere, somewhere warm. I know once the world opens up, but it, it was wonderful that you were able to have your team there and, yeah. you know, Reese and your sister Holly and, and everybody else. So that, that is fantastic. And I think those emotional wins they're kind of few and far between. Like, I know you've won a lot. You've won so many races. But those ones which kind of grab you and it's like, wow, I'm actually shedding a tear here. Yeah. I had one reporter write once and said, and he cried like a baby. I thought it was a bit much. I, I shed a <laughs> tear. <laughs> I shed a tear, but come on. Um, but it is it is that wonderful when you get to have those experiences and it's almost, was there a little bit of relief that it finally happened? Oh, there was a huge amount of relief, I think. It gets very tiring saying um, second in the world. <laughs> it, saying world champion resonates so much more with, with everyone and they understand what that is. So it, it was a lot of relief, but just amazing to finally say it. Yeah. Well, I was waiting to have you on your show, on the show until you'd won a world title because I was like, you know what? <laughs> no, she's not good enough to be on this show until she has a world title. So finally <laughs> I sent the invite out. I'm only kidding, of course. It is easy where you can just say, yeah, I'm a world champion triathlete. Yeah. It, there's no explanation. It's just done. But anyway, let, let's have a look at the rest of the year as well. I mean, we've talked a little bit about the Collins Cup and the 70.3 Worlds. It's, the year started with um, Challenge Miami. And I bring up Challenge Miami because I was announcing there and I saw you take an unwarranted penalty so graciously that you immediately became somebody that I was like, wow, I I have tremendous respect for this woman. And Jodie Simpson, who's just a, an amazing woman in her own right and a good friend of both of ours, you didn't want to tarnish her win by protesting this penalty. Just take me a little bit through that experience of that first race of the year for you. It was really hard as well because it was the first race I'd done in about 18 months. So I hadn't raced for a long, long time and almost wanted to come back with a bang like I'm back. I haven't raced and yeah, getting the penalty was, was really tough because I'd, I, at the time I didn't know what it was for either. So I was trying to think what, what did I actually do? I was out front, so I couldn't have been drafting because I had no one in front of me. So it couldn't have been drafting. <laughs> I, I knew I hadn't littered. I hadn't done anything like that. So I was trying to find out what I'd done and, I didn't know what it was and you kind of never know with a penalty whether you can like contest it at the end and will it be kind of overridden so it's like right well I'm, I'm not going to argue with anyone I'll just take the penalty and I've, I have huge respect for everyone I'm racing against so I didn't want to start yelling and screaming and causing a scene so it's like just take the penalty and a, a part of me always believes in any race that I do is that you can always still win it. There's things can go wrong in other people's races. You never know what could happen. So just take the penalty and then see what happens. Obviously I, I went into the penalty. I think I still had a two minute lead over the main group of girls, but obviously the penalty I think was going to be two minutes. So I knew I was then going to start the run with everyone else. So it was just a matter of taking it, getting on with it. And then at the end, finding out what it was for. And then obviously they, they said they couldn't, they couldn't kind of revoke it anyway. And I was, at a point where I was like, well, like, I don't want it revoked anyway because I don't want to take away from Jodie getting that win and how much that meant to her. So fine, we'll kind of just move on. It's just more fuel for the fire for the next race. And it's not the first penalty I've got, so I'm kind of used to dealing with it. And I'm, I'm also... 
I feel like I'm just, because I'm out the front, if anyone's going to get a penalty, I always feel that's going to be me. So it's one of those things where it just enforces to me, you cannot do anything, even if it's within an inch of maybe being outside the rules, I'm never going to do it because I just feel like I will definitely be the one to get penalised. So, yeah. (laughs) So even as a child, were you such a troublemaker? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I remember because I was on the motorbike next to you and I think... Suddenly you got a penalty and it was, yeah, you took a corner on the, you had to get around lap riders, yeah, and, and suddenly yeah. they gave you a penalty for going on the wrong side of the road or something, right? I think the hardest thing is like in Formula One or anything like that, it is the lap drivers, they have to get out of the way because they're not in the race anymore. So it that was the frustrating mm. thing. And actually speaking to the referee afterwards, he said, oh, well, yeah, if I had the chance again, I wouldn't give you the penalty. So that obviously made it worse because it was like, oh, well, you can't take it away, but I I didn't deserve it. Excellent. Thank you. (laughs) So at the start of the year also, you you decided to reach out. How did this work with Dan Lorang, bringing him on as your coach, who is also, for people that don't know, is Jan Fredino's coach and Annie Hugg's coach, who both won Hawaii in fantastic fashion in 2019. You started that relationship around the same time. What was that like at the start of the year here? Yeah, so Dan actually reached out to Reese and myself because he was really interested in the idea of me. He'd heard about me trying to do long course and dabble with the short course and potentially trying to make in the Olympics in the short course. So he was really intrigued by the idea and just the first initial call was just to kind of chat about it and what did I want to do? And obviously, yeah, he was just really interested in how I might approach that and obviously he has a ton of experience with working with Jan working with Annie who have both come from long uh, short course and then done extremely well in long course and obviously had success in the short course as well so he was just interested in that idea and he said that he could potentially offer some input and we were like actually I think he would be an amazing addition to our team is not going to completely replace Reese because obviously he's there day to day seeing what I'm doing. He's coached me from the beginning and obviously brought me up to this amazing level in, in mm. the sport that we're doing. But just to have that extra set of eyes with that extra knowledge experience um, is never, ever going to be a bad thing. So, yeah, he came on board around, I think it was just after um, Miami. I, I was obviously, at the time, I was venturing to do the Olympic swimming trials as well. So That's right. he found all of this really <laughs> intriguing. Um, so, yeah, it, it, since then, it's, it's been a really great partnership. And obviously, we've had a great year and it's, it's definitely working extremely well. So um, Dan is an amazing addition to our team. Just a quick reminder to go check out any question. You can use anyquestion.com forward slash Lucy to get a free month and go ask any questions and go listen to any answers across the whole platform. So at the start of the year there, you're thinking, I want to go to the Olympics for swimming. Was it like, I want to go to the Olympics for swimming and triathlon? Because it was only a few weeks later there, you decided to do WTS Leeds, the World Triathlon Series in Leeds was... Was there a hope or possibility of going to the Olympics still for the British team, which, by the way, were the number one female team in the world? <laughs> you know, was it, uh, these are lofty goals and you're kind of putting them all on the table at the same time or how was that going? What was operating there? With the swimming, it was just 
I'd, I'd done a competition, I think, um, at the back end of 2019. And because obviously they delayed the Olympic trials for swimming, the time I'd swam on this 1500 at the back end of 2019 meant I'd qualified for the Olympic trials. So I was like, well, there's, there's not a great deal going on at the moment. I've had a year off of doing anything. Why not just give it a go, see what happens? And I knew that the standard for qualifying for the Olympics was way out of reach that wasn't really what I was thinking about but I wasn't sure it had been a strange year I wasn't sure if I if I went and won the event would there be maybe a, a B consideration time that they said you know what we're going to take you but as as it happens I ended up being second by 0.16 for second or something oh, crazy you, you like that you got smashed um, you got absolutely smashed <laughs> why did you even bother yeah <laughs> <laughs> You know what, it, I think the main thing with it was I had not swam at all in 2020. We'd had zero access to a swimming pool. And I was like, if anything is just going to kick my butt back into getting into good swim shape, this is it. it I didn't want to go there and look like the stupid triathlete that <laughs> can't even swim and is there. I wanted to make a point and prove, you know what, we're triathletes and we can be really good at individual sports as well. So it was a, a little bit of one for mm -hmm. the triathletes to mm -hmm. prove that you know what, we've still got it in other sports as well. Um, but just to give me that motivation. And I got back within 10 seconds of my best ever time for 1500. What which, was that, by the way? You, you, you mentioned that. You, what have your so times been? My my best long course 1500 time in a 50 meter pool is a 1635. Short course is a 1615. So wow. I was, I, I did a 1646, I think, at the beginning of this year. So I was over the moon with that. And I, yeah. I knew that that would do even if I didn't make the Olympics it was going to do something that would help kind of sit my year on and have I knew my swim was going to be strong so that was kind of the main goal behind that and then I think it was actually after I competed in the Super League arena game games at the beginning of the year mm -hmm. that um British triathlon reached out to me and said you know what we think you could be pretty good at this short course stuff if if you fancy giving it a go which I was like well yeah definitely I'm, I'm kind of want to take every opportunity that I can get in sport you only get mm. a short window of your career I, I want to give everything a shot I want to know that I tried everything but then actually what happened was was they said all of this and then it turns out that it's actually really really difficult to get on start lines this year more difficult than ever before because there's been a pandemic Athletes needed to qualify for the Olympics. The races were becoming oversubscribed, let alone we do have the strongest team mm -hmm. of any nation in, in triathlon. So getting onto start lines proved really difficult. Um, and then 10 days out from Leeds, I found out I was going to be on that start line, um, <laughs> which was slightly panicking because I, <laughs> Plenty I knew of time. I Plenty of time. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I hadn't have done the work that I would have liked to have done, but I'm not someone to shy away from a challenge. So I knew I wanted to do it, but the main concern was I do not want to go there and look stupid. I, I need to go there and I don't need to go and do something phenomenal, but I just don't want to do something stupid and look like an idiot. So those 10 days were last minute panic training like never before. And luckily, I feel pretty happy with the result I got in Leeds. You um, should. I feel like it, yeah. it came together pretty well in those. It was, it was a fifth place, <laughs> fastest swim, sixth fastest bike, seventh fastest run. You're somebody that doesn't want to be embarrassed in races from the sound of it. You don't want to be embarrassed in the swimming race. You don't want to be embarrassed. And that's a major fuel for you. Is, is I mean, I'm just teasing you, obviously, but it's <laughs> you certainly want to front up and be able to, you know, put your best fit leg forward, and and you do do that. It's amazing how you whatever, how whatever fuels you is working. Um, we probably don't need to dissect it too much because you know 
it, it definitely, you know, you're performing at, at such a high level. Um, you didn't get any more WTS starts or were you offered them or you just couldn't fit it in with the rest of the year? Uh, no, they were Oh, well, you did the one at the between. end, so yes. you, did, you did WTS, Abu Dhabi at the end, yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, they were limited. There was a couple of potential like continental cups, but even they were becoming oversubscribed. So it, it was becoming difficult and obviously I had a, a few other races to do, so juggling it always you went on and you did you you had incredible races then throughout june with the eaton dawny uh race and then the 70.3 elsinore which was a phenomenal race um it was another one where i think you did the fastest swim fastest bike fastest run you did go under four hours there and, and won by over five minutes i think holly lawrence was second there was that a major performance of the year? Was that one where you look at and go, oh, that one, I, I, I nailed that one? Yeah, that was, I was excited for that race. It was one that I, I'd had a pretty good camp, about a six-week camp I'd done after doing the Olympic swimming trials where it was actually a get back into triathlon fitness camp because I'd done such a huge block of work on swimming. I was like, right, now I need to switch that focus back to triathlon. Mm. And at the end of that camp, I was surprised at how good a shape I'd got in. So I was like, okay, I feel like let's enter the 70.3 European champs. And that's a, it's a pretty big goal. It's one that is going to motivate me a lot. Um, at the time it had Daniela Reef and Holly Lawrence on the start line. So I was like, this is, this is a great race. This is going to be a good one. Mm-hmm. And then, as it turns out, Daniela didn't race. But I, I knew I would still have a great race with Holly, kind of looking at how well she's raced before. I thought it would be a a good opportunity to race her and, and see kind of how I stacked up. And kind of at the end of the race, to, to get a five-minute win over Holly, I was like, right, I must be in pretty good shape. I was looking at the splits. I think I'd had my fastest run off the bike, and I knew things were coming together. So that was a, a really good confidence boost and. I guess it was probably the biggest title I'd won at that point. So um, I was over the moon with that result. The biggest title you, I mean, you'd won Roth, you'd won South African (laughs) Ironman. You've certainly won quite a few titles, but I guess if you're calling European versus world or whatever title, that is, that was pretty, pretty spectacular. Um, And then you kind of, you went through the Collins Cup, you hit world champs, and then you thought, oh, yeah, I'll go do a Super League. Was it five days after World Champs, six days after World Champs? <laughs> Something a, like that. A Super Sprint. <laughs> I mean, what was the mindset there? I mean, I think I was I was chatting with your coach, Dan Lorang, on the show right between those two races. And I said, oh, what's Lucy up to next? He's like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to say anything. And then it was like the <laughs> next day, oh, she's racing Super League in my um, – yeah, where was that? Uh, oh, Malibu. Malibu. Thought process there. Was that just I love to race, so let's go see what how, how it goes? It was definitely a, a love to race. And I knew if if I wanted to learn anything about short course and get thrown in the deep end, that was going to do it with the super sprint distance, um, eliminator format. It was on the way home from 70.3 World, so it was <laughs> something to do on the way home. Um it was going to be different because I'd never obviously done anything like that. They they put the Super League courses on really tight technical courses. So I knew I was going to learn a lot in a, in a short window of time. So, <laughs> so why not? <laughs> I, well, we, we all, as Australians, we all learned our craft in the 90s with that kind of racing. And it definitely does make you sort of get ready for the World Series type stuff. Like you become very powerful, very short, uh, eliminator. And I, I can't tell you how many times the eliminator, you make it to the final 10 and you're like, oh, no, I got to <laughs> do another one. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> 
But anyway, and then you, you finished off the year, Abu Dhabi, 12th, solid race. How was that? Was that kind of saying, okay, I've had enough for the year? Yeah, again, it was quite a last minute decision. I always knew I was going to do a short course race on that weekend. There was also, I think it was a continental world cup race. So, and then last minute they were like, yep, you're in Abu Dhabi. And actually for a long time leading into Abu Dhabi, for some reason I thought it was an Olympic distance. Uh, And then all the information came through and it was saying the distances. And I was like, oh, it's a sprint distance. Okay. Well, (laughs) this is, this is the first sprint. Um, I probably needed to have done a lot more high intensity work, but I was still off the back of worlds kind of enjoying that. So I was like, you know what, let, let's go and do it. It's, it's another learning experience. I actually felt way easier on the bike because it felt the width of the road felt way wider than Malibu. So that was great. But yeah, I knew, you know what, it's going to be another learning experience and potentially the last race of the year. I, yeah. I always was thinking about Daytona, but I, I knew after Abu Dhabi that I, I needed to have a rest and, and a reset. So it was it was a different way to end the season. It was something completely different, completely new, loads of lessons learned again. So and, and it was it was a really fun race. I mean, who doesn't like racing around an F one circuit? That's yeah. pretty cool. <laughs> well, what a year. Honestly, congrats again. What a year it's been. Um, from the Olympic swimming trials to World Series races, seventy point three world champion. Um, just such a a mixture there is absolutely fantastic. But what I'd like to do now is just shift gear a little bit and rewind the clock. The first question I have is sort of when did you find your passion for endurance sport? Um, I know you had the swimming background, but was it always swimming? And and what was that like for you? Yeah, I think I was really lucky growing up that my parents had me and my sister out doing stuff every weekend. We'd be out on the mountain bikes, out, out doing something, going swimming. So we always were really active and when I was about eight or nine, I, I got into swimming and instantly it was about the Olympics. I was like, I want to make the Olympics as a swimmer. And I wanted to do the hardest event. So as a nine-year-old, I was like the 200 flies, the hardest event. That's what I want to do. And then when I got to 16, my coach was like, okay, you, you're really good at butterfly or you're also really good at distance freestyle. What do you want to do? And I was like, distance freestyle is harder. The training's harder. That's the one I want to do. My so goodness. I went down that route. <laughs> and then at, I think I was probably only 17. And then I discovered open water swimming where you can race the 5K, the 10K. Always had slight ambitions to do the 25K, but that was ridiculous. And that one wasn't in the Olympics. It was the 10K marathon swim that was in the Olympics. So that was the event that I found myself wanting to try and make the Olympic Games in. And unfortunately, the way the qualifying works, you only get one athlete per nation. So I was very, very close to making the 2012 Olympics in the 10K swim, which I did get to do the test event for it, which was also in Hyde Park and do the 10K against the best women in the world in that at about 17 years old so that was a really cool experience but it it always seemed to be about what's the hardest event what's the next challenge how can I make it harder and I guess that's how I've ended up where I'm now doing Ironman which is arguably the hardest event there is but um I've always loved a challenge for sure where does that come from where does this (laughs) where does this desire to want to do the hardest what is that I mean is there something in your DNA have you thought about that like I mean that sounds always wanting to find the hardest thing is that just in you in the sport or do you like to find the hard road in other things in areas of your life as well like is that why you married Reese? no I'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> it is a strange one because 
in most other things in my life, whether it was schoolwork, organizing stuff, I always try and do it the easiest way. Mm. So I don't know why, where that's come from. I, I do know that my, my parents are super competitive. Like they run all the time and they want to mm. beat each other and, and, <laughs> and they do that. So <laughs> I think that competitiveness definitely comes from them, but the desire to want to do the hardest event, I, I don't know where that comes from. I think I've always had that, but I, I don't know where I discovered that it, from. I love it. It's DNA level. That's incredible. Um, <laughs> and so then going forward, you, you found the sport, or you found swimming, and then that transition to triathlon. Tell me a bit about that. And then also on top of it, at what point did you realize, oh, maybe I've got some ability as a triathlete? Yeah, so kind of the road to triathlon was a real on the whim thing that Reese and I did. We were, we were both racing up in Scotland, um, in this open water swimming series, um, kind of with the elite athletes. And I'd had a terrible race. I, I hadn't done the training for it. So I don't know why I thought I'd have a good race, but I had, a, <laughs> I had a terrible race and we went back to the hotel and we both there and then just signed up for Ironman UK, which I think we must have been in August 2013. We signed up for Ironman UK, which was going to be July 2014. So we had 11 months to train for this Ironman. And we both sat there saying, yeah, well, that's what we're doing now. We're doing Ironman. And we kind of went down to the like after party with the elite athletes and went, oh, yeah, we're doing Ironman now. That's that's what we're training for. We're, <laughs> we're going to do triathlon. And they all thought we were nuts. And yeah. We, obviously we'd, we'd just done it there and then in that moment. Um, and I remember then going home from that trip and telling our family, this is what we're doing. And, and they all thought we were crazy. And my dad has run the London marathon before. And he was like, you haven't even run a marathon and you've got to do that at the end of all of that stuff. And <laughs> we had other members of the family saying, what, but how many days do you do that? It's like, no, it's one day all in one go. And I think some of them thought we were going to die. It was, it was all quite extreme. <laughs> oh my goodness. And, um, yeah, it was it was an extremely steep learning curve in terms of I thought we could do it on a mountain bike and Reese and I both owned mountain bikes, but we soon learned you couldn't do it on a mountain bike. Oh my and gosh. the amount of equipment that you need just to complete it was all like mind boggling, especially as Reese was a student at the time. I think I was working at a zoo, which I decided to do after I decided to stop swimming that's where I was working at the time so did you say a zoo yes oh <laughs> yes <laughs> go on it's all very we can, random we can dive um, into that a bit more later but <laughs> go on yeah so we we signed up for this event and obviously I feel like we were very extremely lucky because Reese was studying sports science at the time so he was always gaining knowledge he could kind of tap into his lecturers and one of those actually had done an Ironman before and I think he was even doing a study into Ironman and what it required so we had a little bit of help there in terms of like I hadn't even thought about the fact that you would need to eat or that hadn't even crossed my mind um and Reese was like no we're going to need to fuel we're going to need to work all of this out and it it became so much bigger than kind of I guess we'd both first anticipated but the journey was a lot of fun we obviously both enjoyed it because we wouldn't be doing triathlon now if we didn't yeah it was a real great learning experience and a huge challenge like going into it we yeah. knew it was going to be hard but we never anticipated just how hard it would be but at the end of it we both had actually done pretty well considering the only goal was to finish um we both did really respectable times on Ironman UK which is not a fast course I think Reese was under 12 hours I was just over 12 hours and 
um, I just missed out on my Kona slot, which was where we we learnt what Kona was at the awards, and that became the goal to try and then qualify for Kona the next year as age groupers. So we pretty much then and there signed up to do it again the next year, which I think all of our family were like, I thought you said it was just going to be one, and then you can move on and. We were just hooked. We we knew that's what we wanted to do. So that's that's how it all started. That is such a great, beautiful story. Uh, <laughs> I think that's one of the best stories we've got going in our sport. It's uh, so many, well, you're my 100th episode. So nearly all of my guests have basically said, oh, yeah, we grew up, you know, mum and dad did it or I, you know, did my first one when I was eight or 10 or whatever. But you guys not even knowing what it is, just going, oh, <laughs> what's this thing? It, did it just pop up on your Facebook ad or something and said, oh, yeah, we'll do this. I just, the, the whole thing about it is just extraordinary and you still went and performed as well as you did. I just think is absolutely remarkable. And then so you went and did, was it Ironman UK again the following year or did you pick another one? Yeah, we decided, you know what, well, we know that one. So we'll do, we'll do Ironman UK again in 2015. I think we, we must have done our first 70.3, or Reese had actually done one leading into the first Ironman actually, which is another funny story because I just didn't want to know how hard a half Ironman was. So I didn't do it and he went and did it and he was like, oh no, this is going to be even harder. And I was like, you know what, I'm just, I'm glad I just don't know because (laughs) I'd rather not know. I think 2015, I did my first 70.3 Reese did is probably the second one at um, the UK Staffordshire 70.3. And at that race, we both qualified for the 70.3 Worlds, which was in Austria. And we both went and raced there. And I think I won my age group there. So I qualified for the 70.3 Worlds, but then I actually won my age group at the 70.3 Worlds. And then we both qualified for Kona uh, in July at the Ironman UK race. So then we both got to go to Kona, which was amazing. We, we couldn't really believe it that we were then be going to the World Championships as age groupers there. And we we were really lucky, actually. We'd made great friends with Lucy Gossage and Joe Skipper, mm-hmm. who were both and still are UK pro athletes. So we were really lucky that they said we could stay with them in Kona. So for us, we were like, this is the coolest thing ever. We're, we're staying with pro athletes. And um, we, we kind of got to do some sessions with them when we were there and the whole experience was just brilliant. Like I think it's still probably one of my favorite experiences of Kona because it just was zero pressure, mm. soak it all up. And, and we, and we had a great race. I think, um, race was fifth in his age group and I won my age group there. So uh, we, we did learn that, okay, maybe we are pretty good at this if we're on a kind of world stage able to do that well. So after that, that was when I decided to turn pro. So yeah, kind of, in a short period of time, it's, it yeah. escalated very quickly. It's very rapid. I mean, it goes to show that that swim background, you, your engine from the swimming and the mentality, you know, you, you like to do something that's challenging and hard. When you combine those two things together and the desire to want to train hard and do all of those things, it is amazing what you could do. I mean, that's a very rapid rise. And then we talk about, you know, how quickly then you, you're in the professional ranks and you're on the podium uh, Hawaii, was it the next year, 2016, uh, 17, uh, 2017, years, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, that rise to the top of the world was really very rapid. Was it sort of after that first Kona as an age grouper that you said, okay, yeah, I'm going all in here. This is, you know, I'm quitting the zoo and I'm going to be a <laughs> professional triathlete or had you already quit working at the zoo? So I think I must have stopped working at the zoo 
I think when I when I won my age group in Staffordshire, potentially, I was like, okay, right, I want to commit to this. But actually, I didn't quit working altogether. I needed a job. No one can fund doing Ironman without a job. So Reese and I set up our own personal training business, which uh. we were doing um, to fund everything and also we both do enjoy that side of sport, trying to help others and do that coaching side. So we were doing that whilst training and it, it worked pretty well. And then I think 2016, I actually had a pretty bad injury. I had a stress fracture that pretty much went the whole way through uh, my tibia bone. So I, I didn't actually race a huge amount that first year as a pro, but I actually had to prove I deserved that license um, because I'd only been given it on a trial basis anyway. So I had to race uh, an Ironman and a 70.3 with that injury, oh my goodness. Um, which was Ironman Lanzarote. Oh. I, I ran that entire Ironman with a stress fracture. At the time, I didn't know it was a stress fracture, but it was horrifically painful. Um, managed to finish third in that. Um, Ironman and then a couple of weeks later I did Staffordshire 70.3 again and I think on the run in that race I was like I'm getting this leg scanned tomorrow like I knew it was awful I was like this this can't just be shin splints or something like that which it had been diagnosed as um, so I, I finished that race I think I finished fourth and that week I went and got a scan on my leg and the guy who scanned it looked at the images and he was like if you do one more race one more run on that leg your leg is going to snap like it's almost gone the whole way through the bone the, oh. the fracture that really was kind of the alarm bells for me that I can't I must train smarter I can't train like a swimmer as a triathlete more is not better just got to listen to my body so unfortunately pretty much the the majority of 2016 after that I, I didn't race I remember I went to Kona and watched Reese race as an age grouper and Watching that race, seeing those pro women, the pro men and what they were doing, that was where the fire was lit really to go and do that race as a pro. That was where I was like, I want to be here next year. I want to be doing this race as a pro and never thought I'd come anywhere. But I was like, how cool would it be to be a pro in Kona? And then actually 2017 was the year that in April I raced. um, I believe it was Challenge Gran Canaria. Finished second to Emma Pallant by six seconds. We had an amazing sprint finish, but <laughs> both of us, it was epic. Um, both of us finished ahead of Daniel Arif, who was in third. And after that race, I decided to go full time as a triathlete. So I was like, I'm not going to PT anymore. We're going to gamble. We're going to put everything into triathlon and see what I could do. And then obviously, that year, I went on to come second at the Ironman European Champs in Frankfurt, where I qualified for Kona, and then went on to come second in Kona. So 2017 was just a crazy year. It was such a Plus great all your, year. Plus your 70.3 wins, you had several that year, I think, four or five big wins in yeah. 2017 as well. So yeah, it was almost like once you decided, okay, train smarter, not just harder. Because we see that often when swimmers come into the sport of triathlon, that their engine is so big, but the chassis is trying to keep up, right? It, it, the running legs and things haven't been there. You've got to give it time for the bones and muscles to adapt and all the ligaments. And uh, it's just been a, a remarkable, short, but powerful journey that you've had into the sport. And you've certainly made a splash. Um, there's a lot of a lot of big fans, me being one of them with everything that you guys are doing, the whole team. I mean, obviously you're getting some of the big <laughs> results, but the team that you have are fantastic. And I do want to touch on that. Well, that's a wrap of part one of two of the special edition with Lucy Charles Barclay. 
Stay tuned for part two where we have a lot of fun with the rapid fire questions and then we dive a little bit deeper into her team and relationships and her physical and mental preparation for some of the the key races that she's doing and she even leaves with some some really great advice. So don't miss part two. It's equally if not better than even part one. So stay tuned and thanks for listening. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit BennettEndurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.